The following podcast is an audio version of a live show that takes place daily on Crowdcast. To join our live audience, visit our Crowdcast website at crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. That's crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. We're not allowed to have fun anymore. So lieu of fun, let's at least not be bored. And we're live. It is Monday, February 28th, 5.02 p.m. Eastern Time. Um, And I thought I was going to say 2 p.m. Pacific Time, but Doug is actually not on the West Coast. And so uh, it is just 5 p.m. for all of us. Um, We are not allowed to have fun anymore, but we are allowed to have Doug Melamed on the show to talk about antitrust. and your new paper about uh, mergers involving nascent competition. So welcome to the show, Doug. Thanks for coming on. Thank you. I look forward to it. Yeah. Um, So I don't know, get us started. We were talking before all of this, just kind of about, you joked that no one's thinking about antitrust at the moment, giving everything else that's going on um, in the world. But I'm curious, and you said something that I thought was interesting, and I do think it's kind of an uh, like a cool way of thinking about how antitrust, like I'm kind of fundamentally describing antitrust. So go ahead. Well, I'm just saying that you could you could if you were trying to find a way to connect antitrust to make it relevant in light of the preoccupation for all of us of what's going on in Eastern Europe, one could say that like uh, like what's going on in Ukraine, antitrust is fundamentally about the issue of what do you do about or how do you prevent aggregations of power in society? Yeah, I think that that's, I think that that's really interesting. It's also kind of speaks to the idea that while Ant, that like there is this very, I think it's interesting. There's this interesting kind of trade-off with antitrust in which it speaks very broadly to these ideas of power, which frankly are kind of amorphous and hard to pin down. Um, And then the doctrine of antitrust, how it's enforced by the courts, um, how it's understood, I mean, has all of the hallmarks of basically any kind of economic um, effort, which it just struggle, like tries very, very hard to quantify subjective kind of determinations like power um and it's very it's all you know it's all about kind of line drawing around what the market is and line drawing around what the harm is and the harm to who and the harm to certain consumers and power all kind of reduced down to those elements um i don't know like do you what do you think about the new movement like the new kind of antitrust movement that pushes for kind of a little bit more subjectivity getting read into kind of antitrust doctrine yeah, I think this, the word subject or subjectivity is, is really key. Um, I would quarrel a little bit with your your framing the issue by, by characterizing antitrust as it exists now as an effort to draw lines around the, a fundamentally subjective determination of, of power. And I say that because I think what antitrust has tried to do for at least 40 years is, is minimize subjectivity. Uh, a great epistemological question here, but minimize subjectivity by defining the, the relevant power as market power in the economist's sense of the word. 
that is to say the ability profitably to raise price or otherwise act to the detriment of a trading partner. Um, and that's supposed to make the, the test objective. And then there is, as you say, the, the, the doctrinal question of the, all the rules that are supposed to implement that test. And I think those have gone too far uh, in an area, have been too cautious. We can come back to that, of course. Now, the, 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 the current controversy, or at least the, 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 uh, the noisiest part of the current controversy, from the so-called progressives or new Brandeisians, uh, Tim Wu in the White House, Lena Khan at the FTC, and so on. Um, and, and they, I think, you're quite right, are, are, are explicitly saying, let's abandon this purportedly objective focus on economic power and, and be explicitly subjective in what we're talking about. Uh, in this is a crude shorthand in an effort to move toward a kind of Jeffersonian, uh, you know, vision of Jeffersonian democracy. Um, and to me, the fundamental issue that raises is the following. Antitrust law in our country uh, is a law of general application. It applies to almost all forms of commercial conduct that, that affects interstate commerce. And it's a decentralized law in its enforcement. It can be enforced by anybody who can plausibly claim to have been injured by a violation of the antitrust laws in any of hundreds of federal courts around the country. So to me, the question is, how do you, consistent with the law, um, uh, have a body of rules uh, that is as subjective as I think the new Brandeisians as progressives want it to be um, uh, without running an, uh, an unacceptable risk of, of arbitrariness, uh, unpredictability, and ultimately, I think, capture of the decision makers. Uh, and that, to me, is a central issue posed by the, uh, by the proposals from the left. Uh, I don't really quarrel with their distributional values, but I, I do quarrel with their sense of what makes, makes sensible. So I, I want to ask you something else about the proposals from the left and um, which has bothered me since the Microsoft case, uh, which was among other things brought by you guys um, and was not particularly associated with the left. But Microsoft's response to this, which I, of which I was dismissive of the time, was, hey, we're building additional functionality into our operating system, including, a, you know, what we used to think of as a separate program, a browser is now makes sense as part of the operating system, which back then the Justice Department uh, took the view, and I agreed, that's ridiculous. You're binding an unrelated product to a um, to an operating system. And in retrospect, Microsoft was right and we were all wrong. To Now I use a Chromebook that's the entire operating system is a browser. Um, and the idea that you would have a browser with a, an operating system without a browser uh, bolted to it is, you know, like driving a car without wheels. And so I look at it and I say, there's, a, this is a paradigmatic situation that antitrust law keeps getting asked to deal with, which is big, powerful company moves into a new area and attaches what we had used to think of as a different product, a messenger, uh, uh, 
to, you know, to its core system and integrates it. And uh, uh, we go, and by the way, doesn't charge for it. So it's very hard to articulate what the consumer damage is. They're getting a free thing. Um, and, um, and so I guess my question is, it, it isn't the, the fundamental demand of the left, which is uh, these companies are too big and they're all trying to do everything which is creating these monocultures. Um, uh, it seems to me there's an analytic problem with it, which is that what they're really arguing against is horizontal in integration of software in the form of platforms of precisely the type that we all looking backward absolutely demand in all of our products. And I, I guess, my question is, and I've been very inarticulate about this, but isn't there an analytical problem with telling companies not to give more away for free? Um, I'm not sure it's an analytical problem, but uh, it does sound like one that makes the, the recipient of that free gift unhappy. Uh, by the way, I love your T-shirt. I hadn't noticed it till a minute ago. Ah! Um, Thank you. Uh, I try they're, to only they're like wear, a whole shtick. They're like I only wear bit. dog shirts on in lieu of fun. Oh, I see. Okay. And increasingly well, at all. But, yeah, um, well, of course, many of us have a dog that reminds us of it or had a dog. Uh, uh, I think you're quite right. Uh, and that's really, uh, to me, if I had to put in, in one sort of phrase what it is that separates me from the new Brandeisians, it's that they want to ignore and in fact regard as dangerous the whole concept of efficiency, which is kind of a shorthand for growing the pie, you know, economic uh, well-being. And to me, that's central to a prudent government policy in this area. Um, I do think, and this is important, I do think that when you say uh, Microsoft is right and the government was wrong, I think what you're saying is they were right with respect to their rhetorical framing of the issue. The government, in fact, the U.S. Yeah, no, no, I, I, just to be clear, Microsoft rightly lost that case or had to settle, lost that case in the D.C. Circuit uh, on matters related to uh, bad acts by a monopolist that were prohibited uh, uh, that had very little to do with uh, that specific uh framing uh, issue. So I, I am in no sense defending Microsoft's conduct in the antitrust case. Well, I, I, I understand. Uh, but all I meant to say is that the federal government case did not challenge Microsoft's inclusion of a free browser with the operating system, precisely because although we weren't clairvoyant enough to know how the world you know, would evolve, we were, we were very mindful of the notion that, we, that the antitrust shouldn't stand in the way of, of um, innovation, technological improvement and the like. And uh, to stand in the way of it is to pay a huge price. And it's, you know, not to say one can't argue, well, we need to pay that price to preserve other values in society, but, but it raises the question of how do, we, how do we know that? How do we uh, compare the, the gains and losses? And then of course, the second order question of whether antitrust is the right tool uh, to deal with that big question of, of how do you 
how do you deal with evolution? But yeah, a lot of what's going on now is a statement that the, that the tech platforms are getting big because they are following a, a, a path that seems to be driven by, by technology and by economic efficiency and, and user desirability. And that, that makes them bigger and more powerful and that scares some people. I, I'm kind of interested. There has been, I think um, it was Fiona Scott Morton um, has written a number of articles about kind of new antitrust and some op-eds. Um, she's an economist at Yale um, at the School of Management. Um, one of the things that she said is that to, to kind of get back to the point of subjectivity and objectivity is that there is something about the new antitrust neo-Brandeisian movement that is tapping into kind of an emotional core of what people are feeling um, about, about technology and the power that it has over them. Of course, like as we were kind of talking about a second ago, like the objective ways that antitrust has tried to draw these lines and to kind of create these definitional like categories um, attempts to kind of, I don't know, I guess say I would like take us out of kind of those subjective types of realms. Do you see, do you see this as kind of like, do you see this as some, it is, do you see the courts basically as making it possible to move a little to like is it a one-way ratchet? I guess is what I'm saying. Is like the is the move towards more and more objective kind of definitions in antitrust and doctrine. Is that something that the courts can't necessarily undo, or is that something that like and that we're going to have to rely on legislature like Congress to basically to like redefine, or is do you think that there is some room for courts to kind of move backwards towards kind of slightly more capacious or less narrow definitions of things like consumer welfare tied to price is like one example that Lena ha does in like Amazon antitrust paradox. Yeah. Um, well, first, let me say of, of, of Fiona's uh, comment, I think there's no question that the antitrust progressives have tapped into a broad uh, populist uh, foment at this time in history. Trump discovered it on the right. Uh, they're exploiting it on the left. Uh, I think there are a lot of common themes of distrust of the establishment, distrust of anybody with power. There's no question about that. Um, uh, as to your specific question, uh, you know, antitrust has been regarded to, and criticized by, and by some for this, but has been regarded for a hundred and some years as, as basically a common law type of, of discipline with very vague general statutes and law made by courts in a, in a kind of common law or evolutionary or constitutional law-like process. Um, and you know what the courts make, the courts can improve. And I think the courts have gone way too far in many areas uh, toward the defendants. They started with uh, a, a notion that particularly uh, uh, galvanized by an article by then professor, now Judge Frank Easterbrook on the, on the Seventh Circuit. Um, Wait, is this the breaking up is hard to do? article or another one? No, no sorry. This is, this okay. is, um, There's so many. <laughs> yeah, I forget, I forget the title, 1983, 84, whatever. And, and, and in Texas Law Review, by the way. Um, and uh, uh, one of the points in that was that a false positive, falsely finding someone to have engaged in the violation of the antitrust laws is more damaging than a false negative, failing to, uh, mistakenly failing to find a violation. Because the market can correct a false negative 
about a government decision, there really there's no suitable mechanism to correct it. Now, I think that was an underspecified and probably largely incorrect observation 40 years ago. But um, uh, even if it weren't, and, even, and I think it probably did at the time help correct some excesses in the other direction, there's been a lot of ideology and a lot of inertia that has taken that basic notion far too far. And, and so many sort of uh, micro uh, provisions, micro doctrines about predatory pricing law, about uh, exclusive dealing law, about mergers, uh, have time and again said, oh, we, get, we got to avoid the false positive, and, and it caused the law to go too, much too far in favor of defendants. And there's no reason why judges can't correct that and say, well, we learned that was wrong in the common law process. Law you know, evolved back and forth. The problem for those of us who would like to see the law evolve that way rather than become a political football in, in, in Congress is that the courts are very conservative. The Supreme Court is, I mean, it's quite ideological on these issues uh, and very conservative. Um, and it's going to take a long, long time if we rely on the courts to do that. But, but in principle, sure, they can do it. So I want to ask about um, what the alternative to that is, because, you know, this stuff is almost all statutory, although I suppose there are some constitutional, uh, there's some constitutional underbrush that a Supreme Court that was hostile to the text of the statute might look at. Um, but by and large, this stuff is statutory. Uh, and uh, while the Supreme Court has a lot of latitude to uh, change the law uh, or to sort of uh, work within the confines of fairly broadly worded statutes in the direction that it wants to, one solution to the problem would be, hey, um, we don't want to wait for the courts. The new Brandeisians have are proposing something profound and and in your view wrongheaded. Um, maybe the answer is an alternative congressional framework or uh, undoing some of the excesses of current doctrine legislatively, but in a fashion that is uh, more uh, you know a little bit less radical than than what the uh what is currently being proposed and so i guess the question is from your point of view is there a constructive role for congress to play or is the allure of the new brandishian uh approach so strong that once you open the box you're gonna get swamped by the you know josh Hawley, elizabeth warren access well, um, I'm not sure what the outcome will be of a legislative process, whether the Warrens and Hawleys will actually prevail. Uh, my guess is if it's targeted at the big tech platforms that everybody seems to want to beat up on these days, they might get something done. Broader uh, antitrust reform, uh, it seems to me that uh, unlikely. I, 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 I said, I think, uh, in a session like this with Josh Wright at, at, at GW, former FTC commissioner, I'm sure you know who he is. He's, he's pretty conservative. Um, George Mason, well, yeah, he's George Mason kind of guy. Um, uh, but uh, I, I sort of said, and I believe this, Josh, if he and I could sit down together for a few hours, we could probably draft and improve legislation. I don't know that Congress can. Um, and more important, 
I could probably select a group of 10, 10 people that you'd, you know, you'd probably label more or less correctly as, as center left, center right. And we could probably sit down with a spirit of goodwill, come up with a, with a law that would maybe improve things. Leave aside whether the precedent of getting Congress involved is, it would be dangerous because next year they might be listening to somebody else. Um, but uh, I don't think a larger group could do that. And I'll, I'll give you a little example. I was involved in a group of people, all of whom I respect and I agree with on 99% of, of our things. And we're all, we all would be characterized as center left and probably despised by the progressives. Um, uh, as you know, sellouts and the people who were in the government when uh, all these terrible things were supposed to be have been happening, um, and and we were trying to come up with a legislative proposal and talking to some folks on the Hill about it, and this group of maybe fifteen people of goodwill and and really largely largely common values, we could not agree. At the end of the day, uh, maybe two thirds signed on, and then some didn't. And, and the reason was that there were some very tough issues there. So it's a really tough problem if you try to do it. And so, and so, right. So let's let's drill in on that. What are the sticking point issues that prevent, you know, even a group of generally like-minded center-left people in this area from being holistically on the same page, let alone reasonable center-right people? Well, if I had to summarize the points uh, of disagreement at the end of that process, I think I would say it comes down to this. And I'm going to overstate it to oversimplify them. I don't mean to be pigeonholing people. The economists in the group focus, not surprisingly, on, on what is the sound economic result. And the lawyers in the group, many of them, uh, Tim Wu has a phrase you may have, have heard of, of describing a lot of people as a lawyers masquerading as economists. And I probably- Isn't that him? What? Well- Isn't right. that also him? In your face, I'm not sure it's a good masquerade, but in any event, um, I probably consider myself one of them. Um, uh, but, but we were still lawyers uh, uh, by temperament and training. And I think where we separated ourselves, and I'm not sure it was, a, it was actually lawyers and economists, but it, you know, kind of directly indicates the difference, um, was that we were more concerned in the economists with the following question. How do you articulate a legal rule that a court, a district court in pick your state, a judge who gets one antitrust case every eight years in a case brought by a plaintiff's lawyer who couldn't care less about the public interest and just wants to shake down the defendant for some money and a defendant who couldn't care less about the public interest because he just wants to get away with his anti-competitive scheme. Uh, how can you articulate it in a way that will uh, uh, send the right signals to the business community and the legal community and be administrable by generalist judges around the country? And so that leads the, what I call the lawyer group to be a little more cautious about about simply writing down the, the economically correct legal rule. There's a translation process that we think has to take place. Um, and, you know, that process has been done by the courts to excess, but I, I wouldn't be willing to go as far, frankly, as some of my friends in, in, in kind of minimizing its role. Yeah. So 
you want to talk a little bit about the paper that um, that you mentioned? I'm going to drop a link in the chat. Um, the mergers involving nascent competition. You're going to have to probably define some of those terms for the audience, but um, it would. I'm I'm interested. Uh, I'm I I looked it over, and I think that this is I think that this is kind of a fascinating um, topic to come out of the FTCV Facebook litigation right now. Well, it is, and, I, and, and uh, I've written that paper for another reason. I'm very uncertain what the right answer is. And I, after the, uh, the district court predictably denied the motion to dismiss the amended complaint in FTCB Facebook, I thought, you know, people are interested in this topic now. So I put the, put the draft, uh, the work, you know, kind of a working paper thing on SSRN. Um, look, here's, the, here's the, 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 the problem as I, as I see it. It is what happens when a dominant firm, Facebook, for example, acquires a so-called uh, nascent competitor, by which I mean a much smaller firm that has not yet reached what one might plausibly imagine to be a mature state. Um, and uh, so it acquires that firm. And what do you do with the risk, which is probably kind of a black swan event. I don't think it happens every day, but the risk that, gee, if we hadn't let Facebook buy uh, Instagram and WhatsApp Instagram or WhatsApp, one of them might have evolved in, to the next big thing and might have revolutionized social networking in a way that we can't even imagine today. Uh, what do we do to guard against the risk that these acquisitions lead to that result, bearing in mind that, that one of the principal motives of the acquiring firm might be to prevent that possibility because it doesn't, it doesn't want a disruptive innovator uh, in its space. Um, some people would say, well, you know, none of these are, none of these are going to have important efficiencies. Why don't we simply say if you're a big firm, you can't, you can't buy anybody. I'm not there yet because I can imagine uh, lots of reasons and, and, and their data would suggest there are lots of reasons uh, that are benign to these acquisitions. Um, but it raises a really serious question because the last thing we want is, it, it seems to me, is to allow economically powerful entities to interfere with the very innovation process that is at the heart of, of uh, you know, economic welfare over time. Ben? Uh, you look like you're going to say something, but I also have like a follow-up question, which is just basically that I was curious. This is one of the things that is so hard for me about antitrust generally, which is that it's, you know, I was just reading, I'm actually just working on kind of the, I was just going over the history of like the anti, the AT&T breakup, for example, or I mean, you were, you know, Ben was talking about Microsoft earlier and you have in like, I mean, kind of absent any antitrust intervention around competition, like Apple just really dipping in like the 90s and almost becoming slightly irrelevant for like long periods of time. Um, and so like one of the things that has never been totally obvious to me, and I'm sure that, I mean, I'm not like alone with on this, but it's like, like the, 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 both like the, the fact that for a lot of these kind of interventions to create competition in the market, these are not um, they're kind of confounded experiments. They're not particularly controlled. And then like two, that basically like the sample size of each of like comparing each intervention to the future intervention is just like so 
in order to bring around a certain effect is like so mercurial and kind of and and fact every every case is so fact so fact dependent and like so kind of completely cabined by time the time it took place and kind of the environment in which it was taking place so i just kind of I don't know. Like, I, I think that there there is something about antitrust that I just fundamentally don't understand that there is like this. I feel like it's this interesting balance of trying to constantly create these objective definitions and everything else and these tests matched with kind of what is essentially just unknowable kind of outcomes and not being able to directly ever be able to decide that, you know, that AOL broke up because of the terms of the, or, you know, AOL broke up, but AOL kind of diminished in its power and capacity because of the terms of the, of the merger with Time Warner, for example, like things like that. Like it just, it's unclear. It is unclear. Um, I, 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 I have a device that it, it enables one, I think, to some extent to um, duck the, the implications of that question. And, and here's what I mean. So I, went, I said earlier that antitrust law is a law of general application because it applies to almost all commercial conduct that affects interstate commerce. And what that means is um, that the vast majority of uh, the, 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 the overwhelming importance of antitrust is found not in the litigated cases, but in the um, anti-competitive acts that, that are deterred by a sound antitrust law. And uh, this is the benefits of antitrust, and by the efficient pro-competitive welfare-enhancing conduct that is not deterred by an overbroad or unsound uh, or ambiguous antitrust law. So what I mean is, um, we focus on the big case. We ask, oh my God, look at the Microsoft case. Was it rightly decided? Did they get it right? And then, of course, the second-order question: Did the remedy matter? And my point is, that's not really the central question. The question is, did the Microsoft case send signals to the economy, to other yes. big firms that overall are going to uh, are going to um, uh, optimize their behavior? Um, well, and and also does having um, a unanimous DC circuit and bank um, uh, that actually articulates like at 125 pages or whatever it was, uh, this is not okay. Um, does it send very powerful signals in, uh, to the next Silicon Valley, not that Microsoft's in Silicon Valley, Silicon Valley startup about what kind of chest thumping sort of turbo male uh, uh, competitiveness is actually not okay. Yeah, and my guess is that was ex an extraordinarily valuable decision precisely for that reason. Regardless of what you think of the particulars of the browser war or the particulars of the remedy in that case. And and so I, I, to me, the, what we ought to be looking for when we, when we analyze these decisions I mean, it is interesting to say, did they get it right? Was the ATT breakup right? Was it okay to let this merger go through? What lessons can we learn from the Time Warner AOL or the, or, or the other Time Warner um, uh, ATT thing? Um, uh, uh, but as a policy matter, I think the larger question is, 
is this body of law sending the right signals, is it optimizing the deterrent value of competition law in this country? So I want to ask a market definition question, um, which it seems to me all of these cases um, uh, and all of these antitrust questions ultimately hinge on uh, market definition questions that are uh, uh, sort of non-obvious. Uh, is Facebook a monopoly? Well, it depends what you think, what you think it's a monopoly in is it you know it's certainly a monopoly in giant platforms with blue thumbs up signals as right like but you know i actually don't use it very much i use twitter which suggests that for my social media needs uh it has competition and it's out competed except for providing me the beast of the day which is you know a very facebook capable thing um i and similarly, as I've thought about it, and it's less true in the social media space, but it's true in a lot of these spaces that there are really four companies that are doing almost everything a given consumer would want. Uh, 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 Google, Amazon, Facebook, Apple. And, you know, they all let you send money to people. They all let you send messages, except Amazon. They all... Um, uh, the overlap of their offerings, they have different emphases and different self-presentations, but they're allowing the overlap between what Google permits a user to do and what Apple permits a user to do is astonishing, right? Um, and so I guess I, I guess it seems to me I can define either, any of them as a monopoly if you focus on sort of micro parts of their businesses. But if you focus on the macro part, I suppose with the exception of Amazon, which does do a certain amount of like, you know, a huge amount of brick and mortar, sending people things that they want to buy, they're actually doing a huge amount of the same stuff, which suggests that there are four major companies that are all competing with each other. So I, I guess, I guess my question is, what's the what's the right intellectual strategy for defining markets in a world in which, you know, you can't say this is the only train track between X and X and Y. You have to say Alexa and Siri are really, you know, competitive products. Well, I think that's, that's a great question, and and there are some people um, uh, on the on the right of the antitrust political spectrum who who have been saying for a couple of years, look, uh, the most important contribution to each of these major tech platforms seems to be coming from the other tech platforms who have the resources and the incentives to expand their business in a way that, that, that brings them closer to you know one of the other platforms. And that's why we should be very reluctant to intervene in a way that prevents their expansion. And, uh, you know, all these uh, self-preferencing and, and uh, 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 horizontal separations uh, regimes that people are proposing is, is exactly the wrong prescription. I think there's a lot of wisdom to that. But I think the, the answer, given the, the antitrust law as we now know it, 
to the, to the question you asked goes something like this. The antitrust laws are not anti-bigness. They are about bad conduct. All of the major provisions of restraints of trade. Yeah, it's monopoly mm -hmm. and anti-competitive conduct. Monopoly. It's not okay. just monopoly, right? So, so the question then is, well, all right, it's about bad conduct. How you define the bad conduct? Well, well, we say, well, a lot of the bad conduct requires some screening to do assess the power uh, of the firm that is engaging in it or the consequences, the power consequences of the conduct. Uh, in the latter case, because we don't want to waste time on the on the trivial stuff, you know, one wheat farmer burns down some wheat of a neighbor. That's not an antitrust problem. Um, and the other is um, uh, is because some conduct matters only if the firm engaging it has power. But if you look at the question that way, you can then define the uh, the power question by saying, um, uh, does the firm have have power with respect to the domain in which this conduct seems to be taking place. And that might be a very narrow domain, it might be a big domain, but, but it, 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 there, there's a kind of a functional purpose to the definition of, of market power in that context. It's not the kind of the question writ large, does Apple have market power and is it actually competing with Facebook? That's, that question rarely comes up in an antitrust case. Absolutely. Um, I don't know. I think that there's, I want just really quickly, and then we're going to go to user questions, but, or um, uh, uh, viewer questions. Um, I'm kind of wrestling with this right now because I've been kind of dealing with this paper that I'm doing does not take on the doctrinal kind of stuff around antitrust at all. Um, it doesn't take on the likelihood of success or do any analysis about whether that how this case should or should not come out. It just actually asks the question, if you use structural breakup, will you make a specific set of platforms like user generated content platforms? Um, so including Facebook, but I draw the market definition slightly different than the FTC, but will you make like the public sphere and the operation of those? Will you make the individual user experience of them better through breakup? And I'm just curious um, whether you see, as you said before, the, the specter of regulation, the establishment of certain rules, the idea um, the existence of antitrust, the possibility of antitrust enforcement as like the new call for like this structural breakup is like almost trying to reset that in kind of appealing to this very extreme type of enforcement mechanism for the specific intent of basically chilling acquisitions in nascent firms. Like Facebook has not, you know, for example, kind of had this Facebook has kind of ceased to type of acquire. I mean, it is actually Meta is picking up a lot of stuff in the XR space and like all this kind of stuff. But I'm just kind of curious. Do you think that that's like, do you think that there's, that that's like a purposeful thing that people are very much aware of and that they're kind of, that's why they're doing it? Do you think that they genuinely believe that the answer for making these platforms better is to increase competition? Like, like just totally by breaking up firms. Well, I, of course, it's hard to know. I'm not sure exactly what people you're referring to in that question, but um, uh, I, I think a lot of the motive for folks who were saying we got to break them up, you know, in other words, leave aside the bad conduct thing of, of existing antitrust, we have to break them up. 
I think the concern there is they're too powerful. And I think uh, the fact is that if you broke them up, you would lose a lot of uh, current efficiencies. Um, yes. you know, imagine going on Amazon and having access to only a fourth of the inventory that you can now go, you know, I, mean, uh, I always, always have said to reporters who call me up, I say, go back and ask the guy who wants to break up Microsoft, whether he's a member of Amazon Prime, I'll bet they all are. Um, you know, we all, we all value that stuff. It doesn't mean to say it's the end of the conversation, but it means that I think the impetus to break them up, at least in the short run, is to say we're going to, we're willing to pay the price of a lot of, of a lot of lost efficiency in that respect. Now, there, there are two arguments why that's still a good thing. One is simply simply kind of distributional Jeffersonian populist view. We don't like big companies. End of story. But we're willing to, to, to pay that price to avoid big, powerful companies. The other is only if we break them up are we creating an environment in which innovation and entry will flourish. Uh, the little guy's not going to be gobbled up or uh, by acquisition or, or, or stepped on by uh, uh, aggressive predatory conduct, and, and and that's the only way in the long run to create an environment that w that will optimize the well-being of consumers. That's yeah, tell that to TikTok though, right? And yeah, I, right. I mean, I I, I I think that point is so self-evidently wrong. That Which point? Which point? The, the, the point that the a competitive environment and innovation cannot survive the size of these companies. And I, look, I I am as un, I'm uncomfortable with the size of these companies. I kind of believe in the curse of bigness. I'm not a I'm not a apologist for these companies at all. But you simply can't look at the last thirty years of American tech and say, boy, the there hasn't been innovation. Um, there hasn't been, uh, uh, you know small companies can't break through um this I is literally was just writing this part of my paper i was like it's a completely indefensible TikTok in like three years surpassed the three billion user mark that facebook it took fit facebook 15 years to do and is doing it without use of the social graph which kind of adheres people to like certain like supposed network effects so like i don't yeah i, I agree yeah I mean, uh, well, I, I kind of agree with that, but there are two kinds of arguments in response. One is empirical, there, and I'm no expert here, but I gather there have been a lot of data that the economists have put together suggesting that by certain measures, productivity being the one measure, um, uh, productivity gains, which is kind of a proxy for innovation, have been declining the last couple of decades. Uh, that raises a question. And, and the question it raises, which raises the second point, is, okay, we have TikTok, but we don't really know the counterfactual, which is how much innovation would we have had if we had broken up the platform? Oh, but we actually do know have we have a really important piece of data on that, which is the uh, the uh, relative rate of innovation in other advanced Western economies where uh, antitrust is a little bit more aggressive, where uh, GDPR is in place, and so they're operating in a much more highly regulated environment. And the answer is they are dramatically less innovative. And so, you know, like, which are the big important tech companies that are based in the EU? Um, and, you know, honestly, Japan. 
um, which or or even South Korea, right? These are these are enormously productive economies that don't produce this kind of you know produce giant platforms. And I, I'm so color me skeptical that there really is an empirical basis for you know for the 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 idea of that counterfactual. I, I, I share your skepticism, but let me just for the sake of argument suggest a pushback that might be made. And the pushback might be something like this. Look, Europe, I remember when I was in the Justice Department, one of the people in the, in the, in the what we called them the foreign commerce section dealt with, uh, you know, the, dealing with other, other competition authorities around the country. He said at one point when we were frustrated about something that was going on in Brussels, he said, you have to understand these people are all former socialists. Um, that may not have been fair. But but one could say of Europe that it it just doesn't have the the entrepreneurial culture that has existed in the United States for you know a couple hundred years. What about yeah. South Korea? Uh, well, it's uh, an economic total economic powerhouse in okay. all respects. But What's it's smaller. The, well, yeah, but, but it but it's. Now, it didn't start with the the, the the wealth and the access to venture capital. It's arguably now surpassing Silicon Valley. But anyhow, the point the point would be maybe the problem is not in specific laws, but rather the culture. Um, and, 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 you know, we shouldn't go full right wing now and say oh, we have to abandon economic regulation because look what it, look what it leads to in Europe. And that's the kind of pushback. But I share your skepticism. Um, okay, David Botts, the floor is yours. Hold on, I'm trying to bring you up. Hello. Hi, good afternoon. Thanks so much for uh, letting me on. Um, thank you, Professor Melamed. Um, I have a sort of a use case question regarding antitrust, and that is our good friends from Amazon, where in the US, which I think is different than India, Amazon can play both, both sides of the ledger. They can learn with great precision what everybody is buying and what at what price point they want to buy and then they can make an affirmative decision to get into a marketplace squeeze out the competition and own that i, I think the best example is diapers.com where they just they they took it over yeah there are anecdotes like this i'm not an expert by any means in amazon my understanding is it's less uh it's, it's not as broad a problem as uh critics have said but there certainly are anecdotes uh, but the the answer is gee why did they push diapers.com out it's because at the end of the day armed with all of that data uh, and they happen to have access to lots more they were able to build a better mousetrap they were able to provide better service to consumers and consumers chose them. Um, is that a bad thing? Well, you can argue with, you know, that the tourist investment in rivals, the data on that are not at all conclusive. Uh, and if, if you don't have that problem, maybe the answer is just a good thing. Yeah, one of the, I actually, so going back to, so I've just been rereading this, but Amazon's antitrust, antitrust paradox that Lena, Lena's paper, I think that her best, case is actually something like Amazon or Apple, which I know that she inherited, like the FTC, she through like in this new administration inherited the FTC v. Facebook complaint. So it wasn't like up to her necessarily. But one of the cases that she makes with Amazon is that they like basically allow these smaller, like they allow these smaller vendors to test new products. They observe like how those sell and then they 
like banish the vendors or like duplicate the sale of the products with like Amazon basics or things like that. And that type of behavior is like, as you said, sometimes like good for consumers. Um, uh, possibly it limits inefficiency. But one of the things that really bothers me about Amazon, and I have the same complaint with Uber and a lot of different kind of um, floating pricing mechanisms, which is that you just don't know and don't have any type of like visibility into the structure of the pricing. Um, and so when they say something like 5% off or you know, $5 off this, you don't know how much it's been inflated already to know whether or not you're actually kind of paying in like in some type of way. My favorite example of this is doing something like buying bobby pins and something like, um, like something like Amazon where it's $8 or something to buy a set of like 100 bobby pins. And if I walked to a CVS, it would be 99 cents. Um, but the cost of the bobby pins is like, what they're not, you know, it's free shipping, but they're basically saying that essentially the infrastructure there, you're paying for the infrastructure of having it delivered. And so I'm just kind of like, I don't know, do you think that there's any type of intervention for antitrust in terms of that type of transparency around pricing? Um, or is that kind of something for other realms of the FTC in terms of, uh, for other, in terms of consumer welfare? Well, I, look, I think, um, uh, misleading consumers, you know, is something that comes within the consumer protection mandate of the of the FTC and saying, you know, there's a lot of law, I think there used to be, uh, you know, it's saying it's a going out of business sale when you're not going out of business or saying it's 10% off. And in fact, it's always been the, the alleged net yes. price and so on. Those are uh, misrepresentations that are at least in principle unlawful and you know, you'd like to think we had enough cops on the beat to, to prohibit them when we think it you know people are getting harmed by it um but you know that happens at the at the five the, the neighborhood store probably more actually than on F, uh, uh, on amazon i think the problem with amazon i thought you were going to say something a little different which is sure. we don't know what the uh what the criteria are that amazon or google or whatever uh, are using uh to um to rank why did they put this first is it really some neutral consumer i mean that's another thing it's very much like a why is why are you know who gets the real estate on the shelves in the in the store type of thing and like why is something amazon's like gets a little banner like amazon's choice this is like the best right like there's like a lot of little things like that yeah i totally so, agree so when you go to your your local store if anybody goes to local stores anymore uh, you're going to see products arrayed on the shelf, and some are going to have the the what I guess it's called the end cap, the the end of the aisle, which is thought to be the prime real estate. Others are going to be at eye level. Others are going to be down below. That didn't happen. Well, it, it happened in part because of a computer program that the, the store used, probably, but it also happened because vendors paid for that. They paid for privilege yes. access. Yes. Um, and we don't know that. We go into the store yes. and we find Kellogg cereals up here and posters down here, and we don't know why that is. We, our eyes go to Kellogg and we, we buy that stuff. Uh, okay, um, uh, so the question is, should there be special interventions for Amazon because it's so big when it engages in practices into which we don't have a lot of visibility that are the same as the practices or maybe even less serious uh, in the individual case of the practices that stores engage in all around the world? 
Um, and the argument in favor of it, I suppose, would be that there's a little bit of a discipline when it's your local store, because if you don't like the fact that you can't find the post cereal, you might have more luck finding it down the street. And if you think, and if you really imagine that Amazon is the only place most of us go for online shopping, this is the first instance, you care a lot about that. And then you start to think of uh, something uh, analogous to common carrier regulation. Well, don't we have to assume that they are the ones that, you know, they're the, the train that everybody's going to take between towns A and B. We now it acquires a weird net neutrality yeah. quality. Right? Yeah. Like they, they, they have to be, they have, they can't treat their own, they can't privilege their own products. They can't uh, promote with it. You, you, they have to be neutral arbiters of their own platform. Well, it's not just yeah their own platform, right? To, it, 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 to make it sensible, it can't just be you can't sell a privilege yourself. It means you can't discriminate with anyone, because otherwise you could circumvent the ownership uh, uh, threshold by entering into contracts with someone, where in effect you get a kickback for favor of the other firm. So you'd have to have a non-discrimination regime. Okay, you have a non-discrimination regime, and what does that mean? That means I invent a new kind of, of online diaper service, and Amazon can't say, that's a really good thing. I want to give it a break. I want to promote it so that it can get started. So I, there I also just, I also want to make a, you know, with, with uh, 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 due deference to my friend, Preet Bharara, whose uh, family fortune came from diapers.com. Um, I, uh, I didn't know that. Yeah, his brother was the founder of diapers.com and uh, their slogan was we're number one and number two. And um, uh, and that is how I didn't know that that was that is absolutely perfect. That's it was amazing. a fabulous slogan. So when uh, the thing that was so threatening about diapers.com to Amazon was that it was direct to consumer marketing. Right. And it circumvented the real the, the retailer, which was, you know, Amazon. Well, now everybody's doing this, you know, um, and so again, this is like, you know, we say Amazon is this huge, you know, is is like a, a, a giant. It's the biggest retailer in the country now. But think about how many things you you buy directly from the producer in a way that you just did not do ten years ago. That's true. You know, you 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 buy, uh, you know, if you bought a uh, uh, you know, snazzy pair of, you know, you want a pair of Uggs or Allbirds, you may just go to allbirds.com and order, you know, or, or, you know, so many entities do their sales, a huge percentage of sales directly now um, that I'm not sure the comparison of Amazon to Walmart or Amazon to, um, uh, it is relatively easy to set up your own distribution system and lots of relatively small entities are doing it every day. Uh, and we actually buy stuff from people directly. And so again, I'm not really sure how to understand what the market is that Amazon is said to have a monopoly. Well, another way of looking at it is, is, uh, what are the obstacles to entry into that market and, and, and to what extent are those obstacles a product of the size of Amazon uh, as opposed to simply the efficiency uh, uh, and the value add of Amazon? Yeah. Um, Mateo, 
Um, I'm going to request just because of time that you just ask your first question that got sure. most upvoted. Awesome. No problem. Uh, this is a question I've been thinking about for a few weeks now since uh, Tom Wheeler was on to talk about um, the FCC. Uh, and it's concerning the um, potential for what I'm thinking of as like po positive policy levers uh, that the government might have to increase competition and uh, consumer welfare. I think that when I, at least when I hear talk about big companies that are big in a problematic way, uh, and admittedly, this isn't like me listening to sophisticated legal scholars, they're usually focusing on regulations uh, and corrections of a market failure that's already happened, uh, as opposed to making it easier for uh, new companies to get into industries that have a very high uh, barrier to entry, like telecom or defense or sophisticated technology. And I don't think this is under, this is the sort of thing that the uh, FTC can or probably should do. But broadly, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on um, these sorts of measures and their place in government response. Yeah, I think it's a great question. It's a great question. <laughs> because when you're dealing with big firms and you're worried about whether they could ever be displaced or you know within uh, lifetimes of our grandchildren or something, um, uh, what you're really talking about is entry barriers. Uh, and your question goes to the heart of that. My own view is 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 that um, legislation to change antitrust law in this political environment is unlikely to be un unbalanced constructive, but that targeted legislation designed to affirmatively reduce entry barriers to the uh, those the big tech platforms that are the beneficiaries of network effects and other kinds of scale economies. Uh, might be might be really valuable if, if done intelligently. And I, I see them as falling basically into two buckets. The first would be uh, a legislation that would that would make it reduce switching costs among users or advertisers. So uh, so-called data portability. I can take my record of purchases from Amazon to another platform. I can take my uh, social stuff from Facebook. I don't use Facebook either to wherever I want to I want to take it. So it's easier for me to switch. And the other other is uh, uh, ones that would allow the new the newcomer to tap into the network effects and some of the economies of the big platforms by interoperating by by plugging in uh, uh, the, the Ben Wittis social network into Facebook uh, so that somebody on Facebook can reach somebody on the Ben Wittis uh, the new Ben Wittis Facebook uh, Ben Wittis platform. Truth social. Right. Okay. Um, so I, I think I think that's a great question because it, I think it points in in the, the the direction that is most likely to be fruitful in terms of uh, new interventions into this space. Yeah. I I mean we have to close, but I love that idea. I think that I think that the I mean I think that you and I have talked about this separately, but the interoperability is kind of like the key. I think that even going back into history, AOL and Time Warner. And I think I've made this point to you before, maybe I did, um, was that the AOL Time Warner merger, one of the under kind of underappreciated um, conditions of the merger um, was that AOL make its instant messaging um, platform or its in instant messaging feature on its on its site interoperable um, and with an open source so that other it could like be used with ICQ and MSN Messenger and other types of instant messenger. And one of the things that was interesting about that, and I'm writing this in this paper, one of the things that's interesting about that is that it kind of turned out that I think AOL did not have a fulsome 
kind of concept of how people were using its platform. And I'm not sure this is like as true now as it was then, but like it was, as you remember, AOL was subscription-based. You paid per minute that you were on the site and it was also ad-based, like you were served a number of ads. And like people just were not using AOL to browse. They were using AOL to chat with, sit for hours and chat with their friends. And this was like how they were paying for the service essentially. So like what's really fascinating kind of about this example, I think, is that there are direct corollaries um, to kind of like the the cluster of services that these platforms provide that all kind of have these like similar types of effects. You use it for in email and you use it to chat and you use it to see the news and you use it to do whatever else. Um, that if you, you could unbundle direct messaging, which is a feature of TikTok and Snapchat and Mash.com and like, you know, Grindr, all of these things, like they're all, they all have instant messaging type capacities. Um, and so I'm just kind of, I just, I think that this is, I think that those types of regular interventions might just be kind of uh, like very slightly more soft touches than kind of the structural breakup that's being called for. I agree with that. Yeah. Uh, the yeah. interesting questions of compensation, but that's for another day. Yeah, no, totally. Um, Doug, this was so fun. Uh, thank you so much for coming on, uh, talking about your paper, talking about antitrust. I don't know. I think we kicked. Uh, I'm sure that Amazon at any moment, Jeff Bezos is going to come and ask us to to like advise him on how to avoid antitrust comp uh, antitrust uh, enforcement against him um, or or you know, or well, he should come on in lieu of fun and discuss it. And, uh, you know, we no. can, we can talk to him about the, uh, anti-competitive price of dog shirts on, on. <laughs> they just become anti-competitive with you, Ben, because they know that you keep looking for them keep and you buy them, them all up. up. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Um, we will be back on Wednesday. Um, who is our guest, Ben? Who is our guest on Wednesday? Uh, oh, it's Amanda Tyler. Ah. Tyler, she's going to be on um, at Berkeley Law. Uh, she is an expert in habeas corpus, and she's going to be talking about um, the book that she co-authored with Justice Ginsburg. Um, and that will be uh, many hours from now. And until then, Ben? We don't have fun anymore. And we don't have agreed upon uh, principles for antitrust in the big tech age either. So, you know. I thought you were going to say we don't have interoperable dog shirts. And I was like, we kind of do. No, dog um, shirts are all interoperable. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Bye, Doug. It was great to Bye. see you. Take care. Bye.